This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm your host, Scott Varho, Three Pillar Chief Evangelist, and I'm absolutely honored and thrilled to be joined today by Marty Kagan. Marty is a founder and partner at the Silicon Valley Product Group and the author of two seminal books, Empowered, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Products, and Inspired, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. Marty has been a well-known product leader in Silicon Valley dating back to his days at eBay, Netscape, and Hewlett-Packard. In the two decades since founding Silicon Valley Product Group, he has consulted on a number of high-profile technology products and become a leading voice for how businesses can create product-focused organizations obsessed with delivering value to customers. Marty, it's an absolute honor and uh, to have you on our, our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Scott. Excellent. Well, let's let's jump right into it. So probably a good place to start is to talk about the difference between highly successful product companies and everyone else, as, as you see it. You, you write and empower them that in most companies, product teams exist, exist to serve the business, but in strong product companies, the product teams exist to serve customers in ways that work for the business. Can you say more about this? Yeah. Well, I mean, that general topic is kind of my entire focus for my career. Uh, the difference between the best teams and the rest. I've always seen that difference. Um, I didn't realize it was that you know, I, I remember being told there was a difference and then seeing it for the first time in real customer visits. And uh, so I got a deeper appreciation for just how many aspects companies can be different in how they work and how they build and how they release and how they design and how they discover and how they do product strategy and how all of these things. It's amazing how different they are. So I have, because I was lucky, uh, really, just by dumb luck, I don't think, just like we don't really have a choice in who our parents are, we don't usually have much of a choice, you know, where we learn the craft, you know, when we're taking our first jobs, we don't really know. So I was just really lucky. I ended up in a very good place. It was known as the most consistently innovative company of the day. This was um, HP Labs, the, the closest culture to that today would probably be Google's culture. But um, it was just a great place to learn the craft. Now, I had started and spent the first 10 years of my career as an engineer. So that was a great place to learn to be an engineer. And I I did learn a tremendous amount. Um, I stayed there 10 years, which is a long time in Silicon Valley for anywhere. But For anywhere, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was having a lot of fun. I worked on lots of different products. And anyway, I, I got much more into this difference between uh, the best and the rest, especially because for those 10 years, I was building tools for engineers at other companies that we sold. And so I was dealing every day with this difference. The companies we were selling to were not working the way we were working. So I, I had a very, you know, direct and personal motivation to try to figure this out and understand this better. And anyway, that that's what I spend my time doing. I spend my time helping companies that want to work like the best to understand what's involved. And it, I mean, it's 
like you said, or started to say, there's a lot of different elements to that. You kind of zeroed in with on what I think is one of the most important of those elements, which is what is fundamentally the, the job of a team? Mm-hmm. What is the job of a product team? Who do they I serve? Mean, <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't get much more fundamental than that, right? Most every company I meet has some notion of a team, a product team, you know, because Basically, every company sells some kind of product. It might be a service. It might be all technology. It's usually a mix, but whatever. They're all building these things, mm-hmm. but um, but they have very different ways of doing. And fundamentally, in fact, I just just this morning I was on a call with a company that's in the healthcare industry. <laughs> healthcare is kind of like the extreme old form. <laughs> As a general rule, there are some really promising new companies that are trying to break out of that mold. But, you know, they've been doing it along the way for a long time. And, you know, it's the the product teams are not even really thought of as product teams. They're just IT. Mm -hmm. And they're just there to do the features that the stakeholders want. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is, well, the stakeholders understand how to run a clinic, the stakeholders how to understand, you know, how vaccinations work and all this stuff. And so they're like the ones that have to say, and well, not really. <laughs> Turns out that's not how good companies do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly one dimension, but that is not how it's done. And that's certainly not even the most fundamental dimension. And so how the role of a team is right, gets to the center of that. And in a good product company, uh, it's not about pleasing the stakeholders. It's about actually pleasing the paying customers. Now, you have to do that in a way that meets the needs of the stakeholders. Uh, and sometimes the industry is its own worst enemy. Like I, I, know, um, I know people, unfortunately, that, that literally believe that all you have to do is please the customers. You don't have to worry about, and, and literally they say things as dumb as, if you please the company, you'll please the business. Or you please the customer, you'll please the business. And I'm like, I wish. <laughs> if it were only that them. simple. Yes. But it's like, are you in the real world? That is not how it works. <laughs> that is not how it works. In fact, it's pretty easy to do something that the customers absolutely love. To do that in a way that's compliant, that's legal, <laughs> that's ethical, that uh, can sustain a business, that's much, much harder. To do it under constraints, real-world yeah, constraints. Real yeah, real constraints. That's and right. So, you know, even on the people in the technology industry, a lot of times they just are, uh, they're also missing things that are important. Well, it, and it's, so that's fascinating. And that's that's such an important, I think, um locus of or or focal focal point for teams right is you know i will be deemed successful when my internal stakeholders say i'm successful and that is a fact of organizations right and the way organizations run the way they're designed and so forth however if you can build a culture that says the way that you're going to make me happy is by delivering results as measured by you know operating under these constraints and delivering um experiences that that will cause customers to give up something they value in exchange for you know, if I use the jobs to be done framework, for example, right, hiring my product to do something for them, whether they're giving up time, and that's the thing that we want from them, or it's it's actual money, whatever it is, I'm asking them to to use this product and give up something they value. Um, and and, it, and success is getting more and more people to do that. 
then that that I think uh, normalizes the contract between the team and leadership. But it but I I definitely know a lot of leaders that believe that look I'm the one accountable to the shareholders to the board to the CEO to whatever whatever higher authority they're accountable to. Therefore, I should have the authority to drive the team against my hypothesis on on what what features we should be building. So how do you how do you get through to those executives? Because that's that is I think the, the the sticking point for a lot of leaders. Well, sure, and in fact, that's you just described the normal case in most uh, you know not very strong companies, and the answer is usually pretty easy. I tell them they already have the data; they don't usually like to look at it, but they have the data. I say, look, you've got your roadmaps that are coming from those stakeholders. You go look at the last year. You tell me. By your own assessment, how many of those things that you did actually worked out? Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, it's not a secret. It's not, the industry knows this. It's not good. And so I'll say, look, you can keep doing that. Or you can look at different ways of working. What are the fundamental reasons that is happening? Mm-hmm. And the biggest single reason, the biggest fundamental reason is that those stakeholders don't know what's technically possible. Mm-hmm. They know the domain. Sometimes they actually know, usually they know the domain too well. They don't know the difference between dogma and, uh, you know, what is truly a constraint. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but forget that for a second. They know the domain, but they don't know what's possible. Right. So then another company like an Amazon comes along that's like, that's not how you do a product. We're looking, we have engineers. And like, like Steve Jobs used to say, we don't hire all these engineers to build what we tell them to build. We hire them to show us what's possible. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's that's a fundamentally different way of working. So I don't I don't think I've ever gone into a company and had them not, you know, fundamentally they know that way of working has not worked very well. Right. But a lot of times, and, and I think um, some of the things that you've written hit on this, a lot of them will focus on, well, it wasn't well executed. Had it been better executed, the, the idea of the roadmap oh, yeah. wasn't wrong. Sure. It was it was in the execution. Sure. Um, but I mean, they've had literally 40 years to try to make that work. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, that is true. That is true. The mountain of evidence certainly seems to, to be on one side of the argument. But the other thing that, and I'm curious what your thoughts on this, because yeah, one is, is they don't understand the technology. Um, but even the ones that think they do, the other thing is, is I, I really have been become enamored with use, good user research, good mental mapping of my customers, really understanding sometimes in ways my customers can't even articulate themselves what they want uh, and what they, because they also don't know the technology, right? So you're always decoding what feedback you're getting, but doing that really well and flipping the script on, I'm going to teach you things about our market and our customers and things they care about that are really important to them as a, as a product manager. So I spent most of my year as a, uh, years as a business analyst and then a product manager. And so I'm always talking to execs and you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm getting lists of things and then every once in a while I get a gem and I can say, well, I think we should rethink this part for these reasons. But you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nipping at the edges of the, of the conversation I've been executing on roadmaps um, for, for most of my career. But flipping the script and really having teams shift that dynamic where they're bringing in, no, no, we have evidence of an insight that our competitors don't have. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on on, on that. Well, it's it's tricky. Uh, <laughs> first of all, just to get it out on the table, I am a huge 
fan and advocate of user research. I think I've probably, I probably I may be responsible for more hiring of user researchers than anybody else, or at least I would love to meet the person that's caused even more. <laughs> that said, there's some real nuance here because the fact is many times those stakeholders know the customers, know the users better, better even than the user researchers, better than the product teams. Now, is it true that when you go out and talk to customers every week, which is what we do, that you're going to find new opportunities? You've got to be blind not to, right? I mean, you will. However, you, we have to pick our battles. And if the choice is an argument with the stakeholders about which opportunity to pursue versus who gets to figure out the right solution to this opportunity, I try to focus product teams on the latter. In other words, let the stakeholders uh, really zero in and like, what do they think the biggest problem or opportunity really is? And then we have the stakeholders let the product team figure out the best way to solve that problem. Now, of course, as you know, we're still, you need user research for that. But the user researchers aren't there just trying to understand there must be a job that's not being done right now. Mm -hmm. It's not that. Mm -hmm. They're out there helping us figure out if this solution is going to work. Is going to help us realize that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yep. Because most of product is not actually about the opportunity. It's about the solution. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean by its nuance. Mm -hmm. Now, once a team has actually built a reputation with the stakeholders of delivering pretty amazing solutions, it's amazing and impressive how the stakeholders start being much more open to that team sharing other opportunities. That yeah. yeah, they'd be fools not to. Absolutely. And, and that feels right, right? That feels like the, the altitude would be right. So the roadmaps would be less focused on, on solutions and it's focused on what opportunities do we want to chase in what order and, and, and let's I make mean, sure you, we don't put dates on those roadmaps. <laughs> I mean, you keep you're bringing up roadmaps and road. Now you're starting to describe what's called an outcome-based roadmap. Mm. And I love those, but I will tell you almost nobody does it. I know. I don't understand so, why not. <laughs> well, I do. It's very well known why not, because that's not what the stakeholders want. That's right. That's right. They want to be able to articulate it. The roadmap for them is going to be a way to make promises to their customers, to their board, to their, et cetera. So I do, I do understand that. It's the solutions. Like 99% of the time on roadmaps, they're solutions, not problems. That's right. That's right. Right. And and so, and of course, some executives, some stakeholder believes every solution on the roadmap is worth doing. So roadmaps, that's the real issue with roadmaps. If we could if we could get the stakeholders to put problems instead of solutions, we'd be like mostly there. Yeah. That's like mostly there, but that doesn't really do what they were thinking. So that's why when you are helping your company transform to this product operating model, you're basically saying, all right, here's why that's important. Now, and most, most executives, most stakeholders, are, they can live with that if they understand the rest of the equation. Well, and a couple of the things that I've read lately have been really good about um, providing empathy into why it's so hard for the stakeholders to live in a world that operates that way, right? So 
they believe it's their job, for example, to tell the board what what what's great about our strategy. We're executing. We're spending money. We have a burn rate per day, right? So what are we going to get? Um, and of course, the the business case model doesn't work well in this. The the ecosystem you're talking about is one where there's hypotheses, there's there's problem sets, there's hypotheses, and then there's the unknown of when will we figure out exactly the solution that's going to unlock this opportunity or get enough information that we we cannot with the tools that we have or whatever the right outcome is, um, you know, meaning the, the the most meaningful outcome. That is a difficult world for an executive to live in. Um, it is a different way of operating up and down the organization, long far far away from where products are being built. And, I, and it's at that level that I, I think that we have to provide more empathy and, and tools for them to be able to live in a world like that and defend that type of operating model. Because it's got to be challenging at that level. Well, it's very different. The irony is, what are we really saying? We're saying moving from output to outcomes. What does every CEO care about? Outcomes. <laughs> right? Every Theoretically. Care about outcomes. The irony is this is very much what they want. They just need to be able to engage in ways that they are they know are constructive and they want to see results. That's right. So one of the other things that we didn't bring up, but one of the big arguments for those companies is, look, the literally the most valuable companies in the world they don't operate the way you do. Right, right. They, so if anything, maybe, that's the proof point you can come yeah, back to. Yeah, maybe there's something there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And yet, uh, it, it's you'd be amazed how many companies I talk to. Uh, well, you wouldn't be amazed. You you do it as well. Um, I did want to get to another uh, a tool that you talk about in in, in the book, um, and that is the the importance of a of a strong product vision, um, and that many companies, despite their efforts, just aren't able to come up with that compelling product vision. If, if they're even trying to come up with one at all, I, I tend to find that teams are trying to post-facto create one uh, because they they heard they should have one or something like that. But, it, but if this is so important, why is it so hard? Well, it's, first, it's really important to acknowledge that those companies that are not working the way the best companies work, they don't even need a product vision. They're, what does it even mean? They have... 100 product teams, they're all working for different stakeholders. There's no one product vision. And what happens is they they don't know, they they wouldn't even know the term except a bunch of Agile coaches say, oh, you need a vision. Exactly. And, so they, they, and then they think the Agile coaches, which don't know any of this stuff, they're a big part of the problem, not the solution. So they end up going in and saying, look, uh, you know, every product team, we need your vision, <laughs> which of course is hilarious because... The whole point of a vision is to say how all of these teams together are going to change the direction of the company. So it, it misses the point entirely. Uh, but anyway, that's that's what's really going on. When a company moves to the model we're talking about now, you've got all these teams that are all working on a piece of the puzzle. You need to explain to each team what the whole puzzle is, right? What the whole picture is. And that's what a product vision does. So it's really only relevant in a company that's decided to move to this way of working. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just theater. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, we, we say it's just theater, but actually, I, I do think it can be useful for teams, for them to drink in the, what is the mission? What are we trying to do? And, and to give them the opportunity to raise their hand and say, I don't understand why we're working on this. If that's our mission, then what? how does this feature fit into that? I, I'm not understanding. And with that nuance of understanding, 
they can certainly make some micro decisions that can make that can accrue some benefit medium and long term. Um, you know, for example, building things is is more more extensible or ready to uh, expand or be 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 expanded in the future if they understand a little bit of that context, right? But well, never- I mean, it's important to realize mission and vision are different things. Mm. So mission is easy. Every company has a mission. You know, like oh, we're here to provide healthcare to the world, or we're here organize the world's information or we're here to make clinical trials go faster, whatever. Everybody knows the mission. That's not a mystery. And obviously anybody in the company, a product manager, a, a, a stakeholder, if they're like, why are we doing this? I thought we were supposed to be doing this as a company. That's easy. A vision is a different thing. Vision is like, okay, how are we really going to do that? That is much different. And I just want to say, because you were saying, oh, it's still useful. I have I have seen companies give create a real product vision. By the way, great. It's not that hard to create a really inspiring product vision. And but if they don't change fundamentally their operating model, then it actually backfires because now the teams are like, we want to be working on this, but the stakeholders are making us work on this. So you know what I think I'll do? I think maybe I'll go to a company that works in this way. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. For teams that have been beaten into submission, I find that introducing this level of dialogue provides them hope that it doesn't have to always, uh, you know, just just be want unidirectional. Uh, I've, I've I've always hated the term requirements because it it presupposes almost a unidirectional conversation. Um, whereas I, I I try to create space, at least, at least pockets where there's bidirectional. But you're talking about something much more fundamental. Can you give an example of a really good product vision? Do you, do you have have one? Oh, there are lots of good visions. In fact, we we include a bunch on the svpg.com slash examples. Uh, if you go there, you'll see a whole bunch of favorite visions. But um, product visions are meant to, they're, they're un- unlike the other kinds of things. Uh, by the way, if I could say it, it's not a product vision. I have to show it. <laughs> It, like I would show you videos, I would show you storyboards, I would show you, you know, uh, whole white papers. So I, I could say missions; those are easy. Those are just taglines. Those are simple. Uh, but product visions—you need to be able to see it. You need to be able to say, "I get it." That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create this thing, and it's going to feel like this. It's going to help. Product visions are unique in a number of ways. First of all, they're the only thing we really do that's meant to be emotional. It's very emotional. It's meant to be very inspiring. It's one of the only things we do. I wish there were more. That is only, it's all about how you're going to make your customers' lives better. It's not about how you're going to make money. That's product strategy. We're going to, we can talk about that too. But product vision is how you're going to make your lives better of your customers. So if I'm a patient, or if I'm a, a vet and I, have, I, I run a clinic, a vet clinic, how are you going to make the vet's life better? How are you going to make the vet tech life better? How are you going to make the, the, uh, the, the animal's parent uh, life better? That kind of thing. That's what a product vision shows. So, uh, and of course, it's meant to be that North Star. So it, it aligns all the work of, the pro- of all the product teams. So it, it's a, it's a special thing. I, I think it's easiest to understand them by looking at a half a dozen of them. Go look at a half dozen of your favorites. Um, 
one of the most famous ones that a lot of people in the industry have seen uh, was early on in the early days of Apple. Steve Jobs had a, a product vision created for something called the Knowledge Navigator, which eventually, I mean, I would argue the first real delivery on that vision was the iPad. But, um, but anyway, you can see the vision and how, way, you know, they were. It, they often refer to it as a domesticated computer. You have to remember back then, computers, computers were, were not domestic. <laughs> not domesticated. Yeah. They were all like MS DOS, if you remember that. Oh, I, oh gosh, yes, I, I still remember some of the commands. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> well, and and so this is actually this is fascinating. This patchwork, but I'm glad that you said that. that in order to to really experience a a product vision. Uh, you brought up kind of a multimedia approach, which I think is interesting. And if I have this right, um, the the real power of the product vision is that it's about the intersection of the product and the customer. It's about the emotion and the and and the connection that the customer feels to the to the product or suite of products that we're working towards. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, the way I th I think it's most useful to frame it is how will it actually make the customer's life better. So they want to know, like, how will it make it better? How does their day change? How does their life change? How does their work change? Whatever it is, I've seen them for very mundane financial accountants, how their day changes. Mm -hmm. They're people too, believe it or not. So <laughs> they, right. How their life gets better. I've seen it for uh, physicians and how their life gets better. I've seen it for, uh, you know, anything. That's the idea, though, is how does it make your customer's life better? How does it make your customer's life better? That's a great place to close out the first part of our interview with product legend Marty Kagan. That's right. We ended up chatting for so long that we couldn't fit all the goodness into a single episode. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll continue the conversation about how the best product organizations in the world operate and how you can too. We'll also let ChatGPT get in on the action with a few questions, and we'll of course have our usual speed round. Would Marty be open to taking the Chief Product Officer role at Twitter? Find out next time. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.